the child archetype. The motif of the divine child is common in mythology. Both the divine child is both spirit and hero. He often has a miraculous birth and faces dangers, for example, from jealous gods and goddesses, such as Dionysus, who was born out of his father Zeus's thigh. Jung describes this archetype as psychologically pointing to the future. For instance, the appearance of a child in a patient's dreams points to future transformation. given to the C.G. Jung Society of Melbourne by Anne DeLauro. And welcome to the Society's podcast, I'm Ariel Moy. The Jung Society offers a space for the exploration and development of Jungian ideas and practice. We offer talks on the third Friday evening of every month, as well as courses and workshops, a Jungian library, a newsletter and discussion groups. Please visit our website at jungsocietymelbourne.com or our Facebook page. Anne DeLauro is a former president of the C.G. Jung Society of Queensland. She's recently retired from her psychotherapy practice, where she employed a Jungian approach, incorporating Robert Bosnak's embodied imagination methods. She's given many talks over the years, and our talk today was inspired by the times she read Pinocchio to a young son when they lived in Florence. Beginning with the telling of the tale of Pinocchio, Anne invites us to consider the powerful archetypal energies and images present within the story, including the child and the puer returnus, the hero's journey, the father, the anima, and the mother. Weaving throughout insights from Marie-Louise von Franz, Joseph Campbell, and James Hillman, Anne shows us how Pinocchio's journey, from wooden puppet to real boy, conveys a path from dependence and rebelliousness to individuation. Anne invites a lively discussion at the end of her talk which has been included in this podcast today. When my son was a small child, we were actually living in Florence in Italy and I read him the story of Pinocchio and I was really fascinated by it and I couldn't I couldn't why am I so fascinated by this story and I've continued to be fascinated over the years and so finally I decided that the only way to um, discover why I was so fascinated by this story was to do a study of it to analyze it and so I have so um, first of all I'll introduce I've introduced the puppet Pinocchio. The book, The Adventures of Pinocchio, first appeared as a serial in a children's magazine in Italy between 1881 and 1883. And then it was published as a children's book in Florence in February 1883. And the first English edition appeared nine years later in 1892. And Walt Disney's film was made in 1940. And there have been other film versions, including that one with Roberto Benigni. And I should say that I haven't seen any of the film versions. I've only read the books. Um, 
but um, I'm pretty sure that the Disney version leaves out a lot. Um, and most of the books that are available to children have been abridged or modified in some way. This is the author. He's Carlo Lorenzini, born in Florence in 18, uh, 1826 and died there in 1890. His parents were household servants, but he had a good education paid for by the prominent Florentine Ginori family, for whom his father worked as a cook. And he worked as a journalist and as a theatre critic. And his writings include school books for children, and he did a translation of the fairy tales of Charles Perrault. Um, and he used the name, pen name, Carlo Collodi, after the Tuscan village of Collodi, where his mother was born. Now, Collodi, if you're going west from Florence towards Lucca and then up a little bit, you reach Collodi. And there's a, a huge theme park with lots of, you know, um, shops. And um, so we can look at this tale on several levels. The first level is that it's a typical 19th century moralistic tale for children, and there's plenty of moralizing to support that view. The second level is the literary aspect, like Don Quixote, it's a picaresque and humorous critique of human foibles and the society of the day. The hero leaves home and has many uncomfortable adventures that are loosely connected with each other. The tone is humorous, ironic, sly, witty, rather like um, Don Quixote, in fact. And Collodi's irony embraces the law, the establishment, and the nature of boys. And at the same time, he casts a compassionate eye on poverty. Now, he's writing this not long after Italy became united. It became united in 1870. Um, so he also had that in mind as a sort of um, a some sort of a uniting thing for um, Italy in his writing. He has a great deal of compassion for his rogue of a hero, and one feels that he has his tongue and his cheek when various of his characters lecture Pinocchio on what happens to boys who will not study or work or obey their parents. But tonight I want to look at the story from the point of view of the archetypal material that it contains. For those of us familiar with Jung's concept of individuation, there are rich pickings. I shall do this in the spirit of the following observations made by Jung in the psychology of the child archetype. Archetypes appear in myths and fairy tales and dreams. The archetype is an element of our psychic structure and thus a vital and necessary component of our psychic economy. Contents of an archetypal character are manifestations of processes in the collective unconscious. Hence, they do not refer to anything that is or has been conscious. And in the last anal analysis, therefore, it is impossible to say what they refer to. Every interpretation necessarily, necessarily remains an, an as-if. The ultimate core of meaning may be circumscribed, but not described. All a myth does is to circumscribe and give an approximate description of an unconscious core of meaning. 
Not for a moment dare we succumb to the illusion that an archetype can be finally explained and disposed of. Even the best attempts at explanation are only more or less successful translations into another metaphorical language. Indeed, language itself is only an image. The best we can do is to dream the myth onwards and to give it a modern dress. And whatever explanation or interpretation does to it, we do to our own souls as well, with corresponding results for our own well-being. So I'd like to kind of bookmark that, that in a way my, my study here of this story was to sort of dream it on and, and to do something for my own soul. So I think you've all received a synopsis of the story, but um, I will do a sort of synopsis of my synopsis. And as I do, can you watch out for the following sort of symbolic and archetypal themes? The hero's journey, the child archetype, the father, the anima, and the process of individuation. So, the story begins with a piece of wood who is impudent and troublesome before he's even carved into a puppet by the old woodcarver Geppetto. So you could say that the prima materia, if this is a sort of alchemical transformation, the, the prima materia is a piece of wood. And wood is sort of symbolic, it comes from the tree, which is symbolic of the life force and of renewal. Um, Geppetto decides to call his puppet Pinocchio, meaning pine nut in Tuscan dialect. When he makes the eyes, they begin to move and stare him straight in the face. As soon as the nose is made, it begins to grow. Poor Geppetto keeps struggling to cut it back, but that impudent nose keeps growing. So that is that by which we remember Pinocchio today. I mean, everybody knows Pinocchio for his nose. Um, in fact, it's symbolic of his character. One of the um, translators of Pinocchio, Perella, suggests that Pinocchio's nose is the emblem of filial revolt. It grew while Geppetto was carving him and it symbolizes aggressive self-assertion. So as soon as he makes the mouth, it begins to laugh and mock him, and then it sticks out its tongue. As soon as the hands are made, they snatch Geppetto's wig off his head. As soon as Geppetto has patiently taught Pinocchio to walk, he runs away. By the way, these are illustrations from various um, editions of Pinocchio. A carabinieri catches Pinocchio and hands him back to Geppetto, but while Geppetto is trying to drag him home, Pinocchio kicks up such a racket that passers-by take pity on him and the carabinieri arrest Geppetto, who has to spend the night in the lockup. Pinocchio runs home where he finds the talking cricket who lectures him about children who disobey their parents and willfully leave home. Pinocchio tells the cricket he plans to run away because he does not want to go to school and that furthermore, of all the trades in the world, there's only one to my liking, that of eating, drinking, sleeping, 
having fun and living the life of a vagabond from morning to night. So you can see there's something Dionysian about Pinocchio. When the cricket continues his lecture, Pinocchio hurls a mallet at the cricket and kills him. Now this is not in Walt Disney. But then the lessons of life start to bite. He is hungry. The talking cricket was right. If I had not run away from my father, I wouldn't be starving to death. Oh, what an awful sickness hunger is. But he has to stay hungry because no one in the village will give him food. When Geppetto returns in the morning, he sacrifices the three pears that he had brought for his breakfast to his son Pinocchio. Then Geppetto sells his own coat in the middle of winter to buy Pinocchio a spelling book. Only fathers are capable of such sacrifices, thinks Pinocchio. And he throws his arms around Geppetto's neck and covers his face with kisses. So after a few hardships and misadventures and the sacrifices of Geppetto, there is the beginning of some humanity in this piece of wood. Pinocchio sets off to school with his spelling book under his arm and his head full of ambitions. But then he hears the music of fifes and drums heralding a puppet show. He sells his spelling book to get the money to go to the show. Annoyed by this disturbance of his theater, in his theatre created by the arrival of Pinocchio, the fearsome puppeteer Fire Eater decides to settle his accounts with Pinocchio by throwing him on the fire so he can finish roasting a sheep for his dinner. But when he sees Pinocchio brought before him, struggling and screaming, I don't want to die, he takes pity on him. And your father and mother, are they still alive? asks Fire Eater. My father is. I never knew my mother, answers Pinocchio. So we, we get this sense of this sort of masculine world of Pinocchio where there's no mother, no feminine. The puppeteer gives Pinocchio five gold coins to take home to Geppetto, but he's not gone far when he meets on the road the cat and the fox. He innocently tells them about the five gold coins. And the fox persuades Pinocchio to accompany them to the field of miracles to multiply his riches. On the way, they stop at the crawfish inn, the red crawfish inn, where the cat and the fox consume a feast and then disappear so that Pinocchio has to spend one of his gold coins to pay the landlord. Good trick. As he gropes his way through the dark, Pinocchio sees the palely lit ghost of the cricket on the trunk of a tree. The cricket advises him to return to his father who is weeping in despair for him. Pinocchio scoffs when he warns him against assassins. But sure enough, soon after Pinocchio is attacked by assass assassins whom we know to be the cat and the fox. Pinocchio doesn't understand that it's them. He breaks free and runs, pursued by the assassins. Just when he's about to lose heart and give up, he comes upon a little house. He knocks, but nobody answers. There comes to the window a beautiful little girl with blue hair who says, 
There is nobody in this house. They are all dead. Well, then you at least open up for me, implores Pinocchio. She replies, I am dead too. So this is the first meeting of the motherless Pinocchio with a feminine figure. As Pinocchio has never known a mother, she is undeveloped. She is a little girl and she is not yet alive. And the blue hair in the Italian, it's Capelli Turchini, which is a deep blue um, sort of color of the heavens, one could say. Then the assassins grab him and string, string him up from a tree called the Great Oak. As he still does not release the coins in his mouth, they leave him with the intention of returning next day. As his eyes grow dim, he continues to hope until almost at death's door, he remembers his father and stutters, Oh dear father, if only you were here. He closes his eyes, opens his mouth, stretches out his legs, gives a great shudder, and remains there as though frozen stiff. What does that remind you of? It's interesting that as a um, he's hung as a piece of wood, he's hanged from an oak tree, which is so rich in uh, symbolism. It has associations to the gallows and to crucifixion. So one cannot help but think of Jesus on the cross calling out to his father. Father, if only you were here, so to speak. And the oak is also a tree sacred to the great goddess. And it's in a wood where the fairy lives. So um, the beautiful little girl with the blue hair, who we now learn is a fairy who has lived in the forest for a thousand years, calls her servants to fetch him and she sends for the doctors. And one of the doctors, by the way, is a cricket. When the doctors leave, the fairy offers Pinocchio some medicine to take away his fever, but she has to bribe him with a piece of sugar. And even then he balks, until he's scared into taking it by four black rabbits entering with a coffin. The fairy then invites Pinocchio to tell her he fell, how he fell into the hands of the assassins. He gives a garbled account of what happened and declares first that he lost the coins and then that he swallowed them, at which his nose grows so long he can't turn around without bumping his nose. The fairy lets him cry in despair for some time but takes pity on him and calls on some woodpeckers to peck it back to its right size. So Pinocchio is known for his nose that grows when he lies, but in fact, as we've seen, it also grows when he's badly behaved in other ways. The fairy, la fata in Italian, seems to have the character of fate, for she's both caring like a mother and punishing. There is something karma-like about her punishments. Pinocchio says how much he loves the fairy, and she says she loves him too and he can stay and be her brother and she his sister. But my father, says Pinocchio, all is arranged, he'll be here by nightfall. I want to go and meet him. But there's no happily ever after just yet. In the forest near the oak tree he meets the fox and the cat and is tricked into following them, into burying his coins and leaving them there. But of course, when he returns, the cat and the fox have made off with his coins and when Pinocchio denounces the brigands at the courthouse, 
The judge, a gorilla, puts him in prison where he stays for four months. It's a bit like when poor Geppetto was put in prison. Once freed, he sets out again to find the fairy's house. Leaping joyfully along the muddy road, he says to himself, how many bad things have happened to me, but I deserve them because I am a stubborn and willful puppet. But from now on, I make a resolution to change my ways and become a well-behaved and obedient boy. And he wonders if his father will have waited for him and if the fairy will have forgiven him. And to think how much attention and loving care he received from her. So you can see he's, he, he gradually becomes more aware of a less wooden. <laughs> On his way he's terrified by a serpent who however conveniently dies of a burst blood vessel while laughing at the sight of Pinocchio stuck, stuck head first in the mud. So on the way he sort of, you could say, our hero vanquishes a dragon, but in a rather non-heroic manner. He continues running towards the fairy's house, but is caught in a trap while stealing some grapes to assuage his hunger. He's released from the trap by the farmer, who believes he's caught whoever has been stealing his chickens. The farmer takes him home and ties him up in the dog kennel to replace his watchdog. that died that day. Again, Pinocchio laments, it serves me right. I wanted to be a lazy bones. I preferred to listen to bad companions. Oh, if only I could be born again. Bookmark. When Pinocchio foils the plot of some martins that have come to steal his chickens, the farmer frees Pinocchio. He runs straight to the place where the fairy's house stood, but alas, it is no longer there. Instead, there's a small marble slab with an inscription. Here lies the little girl with the blue hair who died of grief for having been abandoned by her little brother Pinocchio. He weeps for her all through the night. If you love me, come back to life. Aren't you sorry to see me alone and abandoned? Now that I have lost you and my father, who will feed me? It would be better if I had died too. I want to die. And, but as you see, his, his love for the fairy is still the dependence of a child. Just then a pigeon passes by looking for Pinocchio to tell him that he saw his father Geppetto on the seashore building a little boat in order to cross the ocean to look for Pinocchio. The pigeon takes him on his back, deposits Pinocchio on the seashore and leaves. There is a crowd looking out to sea. Geppetto's boat is in danger of sinking in the rough sea. The boat disappears under a wave and does not reappear. Pinocchio dives into the sea shouting, I want to save my father. That's Pinocchio's leap. Eventually he's washed onto the shore of an island. Passing dolphin tells him that his father was probably swallowed by the terrible dogfish, which is a kind of shark, and directs him to a nearby town. In the town called Busy Bee Town, everybody's busy, and Pinocchio thinks, this place isn't meant for me. I wasn't born to work. He begs for food, but refuses to work for it, saying, I'll have you know, I've never been a jackass. 
I've never pulled a cart. Remember this declaration. Finally, a kindly woman offers to feed him if he will carry her water jug home. He recognises his benefactress as the blue-haired fairy, now no longer a little girl, and he falls at her feet in a flood of tears. Now she has grown up, he says, he will call her his mother. He has always wanted a mother. But he asks her, how did she grow? He too would like to grow. But you can't grow. Puppets never grow. They are born as puppets, they live as puppets, and they die as puppets. Oh, I am sick and tired of always being a puppet. It's about time that I too became a man. And so you will when you learn to be a proper boy, says the fairy. Pinocchio vows to turn over a new leaf, to go to school, to work, and to not tell lies. The fairy tells him that she has come here to look for him because the grief he showed when he saw her tombstone shows that he has a good heart. From tomorrow you'll go to school and choose a trade. At this Pinocchio becomes a bit um, dull. But finally he's convinced and determined to do what he has to do to become a boy. At school he wins the respect of his schoolmates because of his hard wooden feet and elbows and the respect of his teachers because he's bright and studious. The only problem is that he keeps bad company and one day he accidentally gets into a battle with his schoolmates. One of them is knocked out by Pinocchio's math book. Two carabinieri arrive and arrest him and march him back to the town. Not able to bear the thought of being able to, having to pass beneath the fairy's window under arrest, he tricks the carabinieri and escapes back to the seashore pursued by a huge mastiff, a dog. He leaps into the sea and the dog follows, but the dog does not know how to swim. Moved to pity for the drowning dog, Pinocchio rescues him Leaving him on the shore, he swims away and the dog promises to return the favour one day. Then Pinocchio gets caught in a large net full of fish being hauled up by an ugly fisherman. He's a giant. He's about to throw Pinocchio in the pan when the dog that Pinocchio had saved rescues him. So here we have the theme that we often find in fairy tales of the animal helper. When you do a good turn to a character in the fairy tale, they save you later on. He sets off to the town, very worried that the fairy will not forgive him. It takes a lot of courage for him to finally knock at her door. His retribution is being kept waiting outside the door all night by the fairy's messenger, a very slow snail. He faints, and when he awakes, he finds himself stretched out on the sofa with the fairy by his side. She forgives him once more, and for the rest of the school year he's such a good student that the fairy announces to him, Tomorrow your wish will be granted, you will become a proper boy. Pinocchio sets off round the town to invite all his friends to a party to celebrate, but he once again betrays the fairy and runs away with his classmate Lampwick to Funland, with a wagon load of boys driven by a greasy little man and pulled by donkeys. After five months of fun and games in Funland, Pinocchio awakes one morning to an unpleasant surprise. 
he has turned into a donkey, and so has Lampwick. The little man who had taken the boys to Funland takes them to the market to sell them for a nice profit. Pinocchio is bought for a circus. The manager wants him to dance and do tricks, and he treats him harshly. At his first performance, looking up into the cheering crowd, he sees a lady wearing a gold chain around her neck from which is suspended a medallion bearing the portrait of a puppet. It is the fairy, of course. He calls out to her, but all he manages to do is bray loudly, and he receives a rap on the nose from the manager's whip. When he looks again, she's disappeared. His next trick is to jump through some hoops, but somehow he falls and becomes lame. So he's taken to be sold and is bought by a man who wants his hide to make a drum. The new owner leads Pinocchio to the seashore to drown him so that he can skin him. He throws him in, waits half an hour, but when he pulls him out of the water, he finds not a dead donkey, but a live, wriggling puppet. A shoal of fish has eaten away the donkey part, leaving the wooden puppet. Pinocchio laughingly takes one of his legendary great leaps into the sea and swims away. As he swims, he sees a pretty little she-goat with radiant blue hair on a white rock, bleating tenderly and beckoning him to come near. Thinking of his fairy, he quickly swims towards the rock, but when he's only halfway there, a huge sea monster, which is in fact the giant dogfish, catches up with him and swallows him into its belly. All around him is total darkness. He finds himself in the company of a philosophic tuna, who tells him that the belly of the great dogfish is a mile long and advises him to simply wait until he is digested. When Pinocchio sees a light far away, he farewells the tuna and gropes his way until he finds Geppetto. Oh, dear, dear father, at last I've found you again. Now I'll never leave you again, never, never again. Pinocchio leads his father out of the mouth of the dogfish, which it leaves open because it suffers from asthma and swims towards the shore with his father on his back. Just when he becomes exhausted and all seems lost, the tuna, who has followed them out of the shark's mouth, takes them on its back to the shore. So the tuna is another animal helper. In search of shelter, they come across a little hut, the owner of which turns out to be the talking cricket. Pinocchio has to eat humble pie and receive a lecture and forgiveness from the cricket, who says that the hut was given to him only yesterday by a pretty little goat with blue hair who has gone away. Pinocchio goes to a nearby farm and agrees to turn a windlass in return for a glass of milk for his sick father. This time he does not complain about having to work. From that day on, for more than five months, Pinocchio turns the windlass for the farmer in order to earn a glass of milk for his father. And he learns to weave and sell baskets to provide for their needs. In the evenings, he practices his reading and writing. Having saved 40 pennies, he goes to the market to buy himself some new clothes, 
but on the way he meets the snail, who, the one who took so long to let him into the fairy's house. She informs him that the fairy is sick and poor. Pinocchio gives the snail his 40 pennies and says he will work harder to earn more money to give her. That night Pinocchio works until midnight making baskets and while he sleeps he dreams he sees the fairy who says, Well done Pinocchio, I forgive you. And when he awakes he has turned into a boy. The straw has turned into a cosy house and there is a fine new suit of clothes awaiting him and in the next room is Geppetto restored to health and taking up again his trade of woodcarver. And there is the puppet propped up against a chair. What does he say when he sees the puppet propped up against the chair? Something like how silly I was when I was a puppet or something like that, yes. So let us now look at some of the archetypal themes in this story. Now, I don't believe that Collodi consciously you know, shaped his story in the pattern of you know, the hero's journey or anything of that nature. But he had translated the, some, the fairy tales of Perrault, so I imagine he had some of the elements of those fairy tales in his back of his mind. And I should also stress that I'm not trying to create some watertight theory about this. I'm just pointing to some of the archetypal elements that I found. So the, the first, the child archetype. The motif of the divine child is common in mythology. Both The divine child is both spirit and hero. He often has a miraculous birth and faces dangers, for example, from jealous gods and goddesses, such as Dionysus, who was born out of his father Zeus's thigh. Jung describes this archetype as psychologically pointing to the future. For instance, the appearance of a child in a patient's dreams points to future transformation. Another theme that he points out in the child archetype is the invincibility of the child, because he is divine. The child archetype is also invoked in the puer eternus, the eternal child, the one who does not want to grow up. Pinocchio has several characteristics of the divine child, his mysterious birth without the participation of a mother, his vitality, his innocence, his famous leaps. Hillman speaks of the puer's vertical upward direction, made not to walk but to fly his invincibility, the way he survives misfortune. And he has several of the negative characteristics of someone who identifies with the poor Eternus figure so bitingly analysed by Marie-Louise von Franz. One of the definitions of the poor Eternus is the man who does not want to become adult. Pinocchio does not want to work or study but only to play. In her study of the negative side of the child archetype, Pua Eternus, Marie-Louise von Franz recalls Jung saying that work is part of the cure of the split and the difficulties of the puer. And Pinocchio has good intentions, but he never brings them to fruition, which is one of the characteristics of someone who identifies with the puer archetype. He is not related, he is mocking. 
and um, we'll return to that theme a little later. Now, um, the, her the, the hero's journey, the heroic journey. Pinocchio's story can be seen as his path towards individuation, which is expressed in myths and fairy stories in terms of the adventures of the hero or heroine. We could say that the hero is the aspect of the psyche that seeks wholeness. The heroic journey could be regarded as an initiation and as part of the path towards individuation. Here's another hero image. This one comes out of Joseph Campbell's The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and it's called Jason Returns um, with Athena, who's the patron goddess of the hero. Campbell says that in myths, the heroic adventure usually goes like this. The call to adventure, leaving home. Adventures in the form of battles, abduction, dismemberment, crucifixion, night sea journey, the belly of the whale. Tests such as answering a question or succeeding at a task. Helpers, usually animals, but can also be a poor old woman or man. The hero does a good deal, deed for the animal, which in turn rescues the hero later in the story or gives the hero something magic that will help him out of a fix. Helpers can also be spiritual guides such as gods and goddesses. Sacred marriage, father atonement, which is reconciliation with the father. Apotheosis, which is his own divination. The theft of the boon he came to attain. Then flight, return, resurrection, rescue, and the elixir, the finding of what was sought. Campbell says that all stories of heroes contain a selection of these. I would add to this list the trickster. The hero uses trickery in some part of his adventure. I think we cannot doubt that the story of Pinocchio is a story of a heroic journey. Let's look at the key elements. First, um, leaving home. Pinocchio ignores the exhortations of the cricket and his father. To become himself, he must leave home. Otherwise, as a puppet, he will simply be controlled by Geppetto because, in fact, Geppetto wants a puppet so that he can have him dance and sing and earn his bread and wine for Geppetto. Perella comments on Collodi's ambivalence about Pinocchio's desire for freedom versus the call to order. He observes that Collodi has a deep-rooted sympathy for the free-living street kid and it's reported that he felt uneasy about Pinocchio's last words, how funny I was when I was a puppet. So initially, Pinocchio leaves home to avoid school and work, but eventually there is a turning point when he takes on a quest, and that quest is to find his father. Adventure, so that's the leaving home, taking on the quest. Then he has innumerable uncomfortable adventures and survives them all. He's hanged. He kills a dragon, the serpent, that bars his way. Um, he's metamorphosed into a donkey. He spends time in the belly of the sea monster. Now, the, the image of the belly of the whale or the night sea journey, this is a 13th century manuscript picture of Jonah and the whale. The belly of the whale harks back to the story of Jonah who seeks to escape what God wants of him. 
God sends a sea monster to swallow him. It is the transformative experience in the heroic journey. It is associated with being in the womb. Thomas More, in his book, The Dark Nights of the Soul, says, One ancient story that sheds light on the dark night is the tale of this hero swallowed by a huge fish. The hero, or better anti-hero, simply sits in the bowels of the fish as it carries him through the water. Because the, because the story is associated with the sun setting in the west and travelling underwater to the east to rise in the morning, this theme is sometimes called the night sea journey. It is a cosmic passage taken as metaphor for our own dark nights when we are trapped in a mood or by external circumstances and can do little but sit and wait for liberation. That's Thomas More. Tests, helpers, we've seen the helpers, the reconciliation with the father, this is one of the major themes of the story, the quest to find the father and rescue the father, we'll look at in more detail just below in a few minutes, the flight, the flight from the belly of the dogfish, the return, the return to land with his father, and the elixir gains what he's seeking, which is in the end to become a boy, as a prelude to becoming a man. So the search for the father. We could say that not only did Pinocchio seek to become a boy, but he even more assiduously sought his father, whom he did abandoned. But Pinocchio cannot simply return home to find him, as the father has wandered out into the world to look for Pinocchio, Pinocchio must look everywhere to find his father. The archetypal father represents spirit, God, king, model of masculinity for the son. We find the themes of the search for the father and the rescue of the father in Greek mythology. This is um, Telemachus greets Odysseus by Charles Board. So um, in Homer's Odyssey, Telemachus searches for his father Ulysses, or Odysseus, who has left home to fight in Troy. And then we find the theme of rescuing the father in um, Virgil's Aeneid. Aeneas carries his father Anchises from Troy as it is burning. This picture is by Carl van Loo, and it's in the Louvre. Likewise, Pinocchio finds his father and rescues him from the belly of the whale and takes care of him instead of expecting his father to take care of him. Because of the father's failing, he's ill, Pinocchio is obliged to take on the masculine traits that the father is currently lacking. So we could say that Pinocchio's search for the father is the search for the adult masculine. It's interesting that at the beginning of the story, um, he, Kalodi says this is not a story about a king. You know, it's once upon a time there was, um, and he imagines that the children are saying, a king. And he says, no, there was not a king. There was a bit of piece of wood. But symbolically one could say that this story is Pinocchio's quest to find the king. James Hillman says of the Senex, the old, the archetype of the old man, the search of the son for the father and the longing of the father for the son, which is the search and longing for one's own meaning and the theological riddles of the father and the son. And it occurs to me that when 
Pinocchio learns that his father is seeking him, that he decides to seek the father, which is rather like that idea of God seeking us, that when we realize that God is seeking us, we seek God. And yet he has to break away from the father to become a real boy. As a puppet, he would have been controlled. So he had to both leave the father and find him again to become a real boy and an adult. But he also needs to enter into a proper relationship with the feminine, the inner feminine, the fairy, his anima figure. So one of the roles of the anima is the inner guide and inspiration. This is um, Dante Gabriele Rossetti's picture of uh, Beatrice, Dante's Beatrice. In literature she appears as Beatrice in Dante's Divine Comedy or as she in Ryder Haggard's book of the same name, in The Lady and the Knightly Tales who inspire the courageous deeds of the knights. In the Greek myths, various goddess appears, goddesses appears as guides and helpers to the hero. The anima is the one who calls the man to adventure, to excel. The fairy appears in various guises throughout the book, always exhorting Pinocchio to grow and transform. The mother, the fairy carries aspects of the good face of the archetypal mother, life-giving, fertile, benign, nurturing, wise, forgiving. She rescues him, gives him medicine, cajoles him, looks after him as a good mother does. But she also acts almost as a Kali figure, or at least as a figure with a powerful and magic qualities that bring Pinocchio face to face with reality. James Hillman in his study, Senex and Pu'er, observes that the Pu'er figures have a special connection with the Great Mother who is in love with them as carriers of the spirit. <laughs> I'm just going to make a brief excursion now into Apuleius's The Golden Ass. Marie-Louise von Franz analyzes this second century AD story written in Latin as a story of individuation. The hero, Lucius, goes on a journey to satisfy his curiosity about magic. While trying to turn himself into a bird, he accidentally gets turned into an ass. Lucius becomes an ass, von Franz says, because he relates to women only sensually. According to von Franz, at the time that Apuleius was writing, the ass was seen as part of the retinue of Dionysus and as part and as such it was associated with lasciviousness, drunkenness, and ecstasy. So Pinocchio, as a 19th century boy, mutatus mutandus, his behavior is Dionysian. Both Lucius and Pinocchio are described by the creators as impudent and mocking. Von Franz specifically points to the importance of the fact that Lucius ceases to be ironic and mocking and starts to give himself naively to his emotional life. In both the golden ass and Pinocchio, the hero suffers cruelly as a donkey and is threatened with death from which he escapes. Lucius can only lose his donkey self by eating roses, symbolizing eros, that is, entering into relationship. He finally manages to do this after many adventures at a festival for the goddess Isis. 
and Isis is associated with the goddess Aphrodite or Venus, uh, who are associated with Eros or relationship. Lucius is redeemed when he serves the goddess symbolically by eating the goddess's flowers. Pinocchio is redeemed when he serves the fairy by giving her, via the snail, the money he was going to spend on himself for new clothes. In both cases, the Puer characters are redeemed when they serve the feminine. Pinocchio loses his donkey skin in the sea, symbol of the unconscious. Once untied, he plunges into the sea and swims and swims to continue the search for his father. And in fact, in uh, The Golden Ass, uh, when Lucius has a uh, vision of the goddess, he sees her rising out of the sea. Guided by the anima figure, the soul, in the form of the blue-haired fairy on the rock, he is finally swallowed into the belly of the whale. It is here that he finds the beginning of his redemption when he rescues and tenderly tends his father. Now at last he has a heart. Initially the fairy appears as a little girl who appears, who declares she is dead. Von Franz says, it is relatedness that gives life to things. If I am not related to someone, it is absolutely irrelevant if that person is dead or alive. But as she begins to engage with Pinocchio, the fairy with the blue fair hair becomes mother, inspiration and guide, a developing anima figure. She never gives up on him. She both guides him into experiences that will transform him and protect him, and protects him. And as such, she's also the supreme good mother. She's the feminine spiritual principle beyond human. She rescues him from hanging. She frightens him into taking his medicine. She laughs at him when his nose grows. She awakens his capacity for grief when he thinks she's dead. One of her messengers is the snail, the symbol of the time it takes the psyche to grow towards wholeness. She teaches him patience when she sends the snail to let him in. She forgives him his betrayal on numerous occasions. She inspires him with love and devotion and reminds him that she loves him and is watching over him when she appears at the puppet show. She entices him to where he'll be swallowed by the dogfish so that he will find his father. She's connected with the hut that gives Pinocchio and Geppetto shelter. She gives him the opportunity to serve her by sending the snail to tell Pinocchio she's ill and poor. And finally she transforms him into a boy. She humanizes him. He is not redeemed until he serves her. His relationship with her before that was closer to cupboard love. Von Franz says in her Pua Eternus study, this inner birth could only take place with the help of the feminine principle. Then the Pua could become what he was meant to be, a symbol of renewal and the total inner man, of the total inner man, for whom the neurotic pueri eterni of our days are unknowingly searching. It is no wonder then that this story resonates with us and endures to this day. And so I'd like now, it's, it's question time, and I'm going to ask the questions. <laughs> First, uh, from the men in the audience. What responses do you have to this story? Uh, th there don't seem to be uh, many women in the story. That's correct. 
um, so um, yeah, that, that was my sort of uh, take on the story anyway. And uh, but but as you say, um, the, the the fairy uh, plays a very important role in the, in, in the story also. Um, thank you very much. It's a really rich story, and I, I'm absolutely riveted in the whole thing. I can certainly relate to the little boy um, uh, having to work and wanting to play. It's a big theme. But I've been thinking, been struggling with another story that I've been reading to my grandchildren, my granddaughters, The Gingerbread Man. Yes. And this, this is such a, Pinocchio, such a tortuous, long journey, but the gingerbread man is all over in a flash. You know, he just doesn't make it. It's, and there's that lovely run, run as fast as you can. You can't catch me. I'm the gingerbread man. I've read it time and time again because the kids love repeating mm. it. But he's dead in a flash. The fox eats him. <laughs> have you got a comment? You know, that's my response, but have you got a comment about that one? Is that... Uh, um. Uh, well, I, I imagine it's um, it is a uh, an old story, I presume, the Gingerbread Man. It's a um, so I can see where it would be. Um, you know, I can see the the similarities, but as you say, um, it doesn't. No, there's no um, redemption. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Any responses in terms of um, the the in terms of the the, the women's responses to re relationship? Are there any women here who have been trying to have a relationship with a puer man, for instance? <laughs> I'm not commenting on that, but uh, it was interesting that you said in 1892 the English version of Pinocchio and what really stood out for me was that the fairy sees in Pinocchio his good heart. I'm currently studying um, fairy tales to do with another character and that was also the relatedness aspect that is really part of the whole story, the sense of right relationships is... Um, central to the identity of who he is at the end. Uh huh. So that's really something that's come out to me. And mm. in that particular time, that was a new concept in Victorian children's literature, that the, what is really valued is inner values, not outer appearance. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. Um, just to answer um, two questions you've asked um, mm. relating to a poor man. Yes, I certainly relate on that level. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then also I'm a mother to a teenage boy and you know, I certainly relate to um, Pinocchio and mm -hmm. the trials and tribulations of that age and having to be very patient and mm -hmm. be the loving mother. And so I guess it's that aspect of the mother that I'm called upon a lot in both situations, mm. which um, doesn't feel quite comfortable when it comes to Pue relationships. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so I don't know how to work that one out. <laughs> yeah. I'd, I would say that my, I sort of just, 
you know, I was saying at the beginning, why am I so fascinated by this? And it was only when I'd done this study that I, that I realised why. But it's, it's that I sort of identify with the blue-haired fairy because, I'm, you know, all the men I'm ever attracted to are poets. <laughs> so that was why. That was that's the that's the answer to why I actually was so so um, uh, drawn to this story. But I didn't realise it until I had actually done done the study. So, um, out of curiosity, like, did you feel that there was teachings in there for you? Ah, uh, not as overtly teaching. I was just able to see, you know, the the patience that's required and the. The, the 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 aspects the different faces you know the 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 Kali face and all the other faces and it was it just it just sort of spoke to me um, for that reason but I don't have a specific teaching out of it no. uh, my own um, feelings when I thought about well what did I as a woman uh, what happened to me as I was hearing the um, myth, the fairy tale, um, was I was thinking, well, for me, what seemed really important that stood out was the ending where he he becomes a real live boy. It, it, inside myself, there was this very strong, ah, you know, sort of feeling to the story. And it wasn't like... You know, he marries and he lives happily ever after sort of ending. It was something like a birth, like you say, ah, this birth, you know, that sort of feeling inside myself. And it sort of ties in with what was being thrown around about births just a moment ago, uh, where I felt like it was like it's like um, Christ has come or or he's he's been born or or something of a spiritual birth, or something inside himself, a transformation. It's just this captures this moment, which is uh, seems to be so important, uh, which I thought was um, what you know what stood out for myself in hearing it. Thank you. Yes, thank you for that. In fact, there is a, p a point where he says, "I wish I were born again." Yes, so it is like a birth. Yeah. Yes, and further on that birth theme, I was seeing that the conception was Geppetto's conception and that in a way that's like um, a man's longing for his inner child, mm -hmm. for himself, right. and conceived Pinocchio. Mm. In fact, it did occur to me, you know, that you could play with it in different ways. You could say, you know, if... Um, if Pinocchio was the blue fairy's animus, or if you know you could, if if um, she was, uh, or they were both aspects of Geppetto in some way, you know, you could really play, play with um, telling, looking at the story in different ways. Thank you. Um, when I heard that you were coming to talk to us, I got. Um, the version of um, Pinocchio out of the library and decided to read it. And I thought, well, I'm not going to waste it just reading it to myself. So I subjected my 12-year-old son to nightly readings and he loved it. And uh, he was always asking for, you know, when are we going to read more Pinocchio? And um, 
I was just wondering if you could, um, you, you've obviously read it to your son over and over again, could you tell me a little bit about how he reacted or do you know about how other children um, respond to the story? I think they love the rascally side of Pinocchio. Um, uh, I've never actually discussed it with my son. I don't think he'd discuss it with me now because he's <laughs> nearly 27 now. But uh, <laughs> um, might be interesting to ask him. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, he liked the, he he did love it. Yes, I think children just love that they identify with the wanting to be free and not wanting to work and not mm. wanting to go to school and. And just the rascaliness of it all. Yeah, they love it. Mm. It's interesting, by the way, that uh, Lorenzini never married. He was already in his 50s, I think, when he wrote this story. And he never married. So, who knows? <laughs> Maybe he was a poet too. <laughs> That's something that struck me, that uh, at the end of the story, Pinocchio doesn't find his mother, doesn't seem to have any further connection with his mother. Um, he's, look, he's looking for his father, which you've obviously said is he's looking for his manhood, for you know, growing up, individuating as, as a man, as a, as a boy. Um, is that a, a sort of mark of the poor Eternus, someone who's still looking for a mother figure in his partners or his loves and um, hasn't grown up in that sense? It is, yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But you're right, in fact, um, there is no sort of marriage at the end, is there? Um, she appears to him in a dream, but she, she's no longer. But one would have the sense that he had somehow integrated her to some extent. One hopes. <laughs> I guess I was thinking about your comment earlier about has anyone been in, in a relationship with a, you know, a grown-up man who's still Pinocchio. I'm not familiar with that kind of term, and I was reflecting on it, the end of it, thinking, well, if the end had been different, if Pinocchio had continued to be the irresponsible, selfish little boy, then he never would have been able to become human. Right. So if he'd been, if he'd lived for 50 years and was still wanting to play and not wanting to work and still looking for mum and dad to look after him, um, then it seems kind of quite realistic when, the, when dad gets sick and the mother figure also gets sick, then he's 50, his parents probably would have been 70-something mm. and may not have been able to continue to look after this little boy. Then he would seek those types of relationships with adult women, mm -hmm. wouldn't he? Still looking for mm. mum and dad, mm. I guess. Mm -hmm. So there's, to, to me, I was thinking that Pinocchio's story was giving us some insight into how human beings should grow and develop and yeah. there are benefits in doing that. Well, particularly, you know, growing for, up. for men um, through, through relationships, through... I would. I, what I'm saying here is through some um, service to the goddess. Yeah, or we by you eating the roses, reciprocal relationships. Mm. Yeah, through give and take, not mm. just to. Yeah, the ascent. It's the ascent. Cupboard love. Mm. Yeah. Yes, that's basically my thesis here. That 
well, that's the part that I'm stressing. Yeah. I'm sorry we have to stop which is what has obviously turned into a very interesting discussion, um, but we will have to, as it's already half past nine. Um, I thank you all for coming, and thank you so much, Anne. This has been terrific and stimulated enormous discussion. Thank you very much. enjoyed listening to Anne's exploration of the tale of Pinocchio, with themes ranging from the loss of and the reconciliation with the father, to the right relationship with the inner feminine. Pinocchio's hero's journey encompasses richly imaginative trials and tribulations, as he is ultimately granted the right to realness as a human boy. Thank you for listening and please visit us at www.jungsocietymelbourne.com or have a look at our Facebook page. 